Well, hey, church family, I'm so glad that you are joining us today as we kick off this new series entitled Blueprints, a study on the book of 1 Timothy. The story goes of a builder uh, who was building a new home and construction was going amazing. All the products and the material were lining up great on the first floor. Everything was just smooth. It was running in time. No frustration. Everything was smooth sailing. But then they got to the second floor. And when they got to the second floor, chaos started to just run rampant. None of the materials, none of the products were lining up right. Nothing was coming together. Uh, delays, more money being spent, and, and it was just becoming very chaotic and very frustrating because nothing seemed to fit properly. The, the, the main builder just was just so confused and just, just frustrated of why couldn't he figure this out? But then he finally realized the problem. He realized that he was running off of two different sets of blueprints. His construction workers had two different sets of blueprints, and that's why it was causing all of the chaos and all of the problems. Now, in the very, very similar way, this is what can happen into the health of our personal lives and into the health of our churches. How easy it can be when we start running off of two potential blueprints designed for our lives. Because we all have a choice. We can either run off of the world's blueprint or we can run off of God's blueprint and they're conflicting often and a lot of times we can start to take the world's blueprint over God's blueprint and sometimes we can literally just forget about it and dismiss God's blueprint for our lives and this can become a major major problem. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be going on a journey, going on a journey as we open up a pastoral epistle entitled 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy was written to Timothy, and it's a blueprint to literally help us run our lives and run the health of the church in an appropriate way. Now, just a little bit of a warning here for you. Uh, when it comes to this series, we're going to see a thread, kind of a theme laced throughout the whole series. And it's this, is that God's order will seem to be out of order in the world's eyes. Let me say that again. God's order will seem to be out of order in the world's eyes. And so as we go on this journey, I'm just going to be straight with you because it's, it's the same thing happens to me as we've been going through this series and preparing for this series is that sometimes you're going to hear things and you're going to read things from God's order that's not going to feel good. It's not going to sound good. It might not even look good. And, and it's going to start to maybe make you feel a little uncomfortable, a little uneasy. But when those moments come, I prayerfully ask that you would ask yourself, where are you taking your cues? Are you taking them from the world's order or from God's order? Because, come on, let's be honest. Don't you want to take your cues from the builder of all builders, the contractor of all contractors, the designer of all designer who's designed all of this and knows everything and knows everything until the end? And so that's our journey that we'll be heading on over the next few weeks. 
But before we open up this blueprint and begin this journey of 1 Timothy, I just want to pray for you and pray for me. So, Father, uh, God, I just ask that you would take control, uh, that you would get all the noise and distractions out of our minds, and that we would focus on this blueprint that you have preserved for us. And so get me out of the way, control my pace and my energy. I need your help as always. We pray this in the power of your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Well, hey, have a copy of the scriptures. Please open it up to the book of 1 Timothy. That's right, the book of 1 Timothy. We'll be starting in chapter one. But before we dive in, I've got to kind of set the stage of the history of where we're landing on. Uh, This letter, this real letter, this actual real letter, not made up fairy tale, this letter was written around 63 to 66 AD in Macedonia. This was written by the man named Paul, the apostle Paul, that wrote the majority of the New Testament. And this was right after his release of his first imprisonment uh, for spreading the gospel. He was put in jail for that. And, and this would be one of his last three letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. This letter, 1 Timothy, was written to, you guessed it, Timothy, who was uh, uh, his uh, mentee, uh, his assistant, that he would, it was written to strengthen him, to encourage him, and to instruct him to stay faithful by staying and ministering to the church in Ephesus that Paul had started earlier. He's encouraging him, don't leave. Don't leave. He's he's saying, listen, I know you're having health issues. I know there's conflict. I know the church of Ephesus is being enticed by false teachings. I know people aren't taking you seriously because of your youthfulness. But Timothy, please stay the course. Keep building the church. Don't give up. It's worth it. So that is a little of where and when and why uh, this whole letter was written. And so now let's begin and uncover the text. It says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. We have to just step back and remember, oh, how amazing the shift and the change of the apostle Paul. And, 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 and this is a great reminder to us of God's purpose and transforming power and how he wants to take someone's story and turn it around and transform it for his glory and how he has a royal command for all of us. And I'm not saying we're all going to be the Apostle Paul, but God wants to use us all in mighty ways like he used the Apostle Paul. And he's given all of us, when we receive him as our Savior, a royal command. Uh, we're reminded of this in John 15, 12, when Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. We are given a royal commandment to show the world the love of Jesus. He's enlisted us, the moment that we receive Jesus, he's enlisted us into his royal command, his royal assignment to be his builders. I mean, what an amazing gift that he will take our story for his glory, that we get to be builders, that he gives us the keys and that we get to have the blueprints to build his church. I love how Augustine is quoted for this. It says, God does not choose a person who is worthy. I mean, come on, like what a gift that we get to do this. But by the act of choosing him, he makes him worthy. And so the question is, is how has your royal assignment been going? How, how has that been working out for you in your day-to-day life? Are, are you taking that royal commandment that God has given you, if you're a Jesus follower today, seriously? Or are you wasting it away? And I'm not just talking about like being in church or being in ministry. I'm I'm talking about being a Jesus follower in the world, wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you play. 
I mean, I was uh, talking to one of my good friends this week, and uh, he, he's in charge of a lot of road projects. So you might not like him right now, but you'll like him later, <laughs> you know, when the roads are a little smoother. And, and, you know, he is with hundreds of construction workers all the time. And he's in places where you can't go right now. And, and I, I, just, just because of how he is, he literally fed the entire 275 crew Chipotle one day. And I'm like, dude, like, that's amazing. And, and it, it shocks people to why you're acting the way that you're acting. He's starting to, to, to see and realize that, that he has a royal command by his Savior to show the love and the light of Christ in areas that many people can't get to or go to right now because of his job and what he has. What is your royal assignment looking like for you? Are, are you taking advantage of where you're at in the world for your royal assignment that God has given you. May we not waste it. And then it continues in uh, verse two. It says this, to Timothy, he's writing this to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Timothy, uh, we know that his, uh, that his father uh, was a Greek, but his mother and his grandmother were a Christian. And so he kind of had a split upbringing, but then came to know Jesus. It continues and it says this, it says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to these myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. What's interesting is it says that he urged him. Paul wastes no time in getting to the point and the purpose of this letter. He tells Timothy, he warns him of the false teachers that are wasting time creating these crazy discussions and arguments and, all, and promoting all these controversies. And he's saying, you got to put an end to it. You've got to put a stop to it. Now, normally, Paul, when he would start off his letters, it would be with gratitude and encouragement. But we see here, Paul wastes no time right now. And he says, look it, you got to put a stop to this false teaching. You see, Ephesus was an area, uh, uh, this church, the church of Ephesus was in, the, in this region that was located by the Aegean Sea. It was a metropolitan area. There was a quarter of a million people that had such great importance and power of, of buying, selling, and trading, transporting goods. And so it, it, it lured in uh, businessmen, wealthy people, religious enthusiasts, artists. Uh, and so oftentimes the citizens were distracted by materialism, paganism, um, uh, you know, uh, just sex and lust. It was literally like a cafeteria of pleasure for your picking, which then, that because of that cafeteria of pleasure of picking, it would then transfer into the local church. Sound familiar? Uh, this is what was happening in the church of Ephesus. Then it continues in verse five. It says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. And then it continues. It says this, certain persons by swerving from these, kind of going off track, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. He's basically calling out all the wannabes that are literally pretending to be wise, uh, putting out sterile law, watering down the true hope 
of the gospel. And then he says this, he says this in verse eight. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for just, uh, for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, it continues in the same vein, for the murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. He's basically saying all these things that I've just listed are not healthy, are not of sound doctrine, are not part of God's blueprint is what he's saying. And then he says that we need to be entrusted with the true gospel and to handle God's word delicately and not dismiss um, things just because. So what does all this mean? What is this reminding us? It reminds us of many different things, but here's one major takeaway from this section is that God's law is not a bad law. That God's law is not a bad law. Who's God's law for? Is it for the holy? Is it for the perfect? Is it just for the just? No, no, no. God's law is for the ungodly. It's for the messed up. It's for the ones that don't have it all together out. And I don't know about you, but is there anyone else out there that feels like they don't always have it all together? Yeah, I'm in your camp too. And so, what does this remind us? Is that God's law is good for me. Wherever you're watching, wherever you're listening, just say that. God's law is good for me. But why? Why is God's law good for you? Why is God's law good for me? God's law is literally like a foundation for us. You know, and, and, and we know this. Every worker, every construction worker, like we talked about in the beginning of this message, knows that you got to have a, when you start a project, you got to make sure the foundation's good. I just finished uh, doing uh, wood floors at, at my house for my wife for her, 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 her birthday, and we had to prep the floor, make sure all the old carpet staples were out, because if not, it would mess up the interior, the integrity of the floor. It's so important. You think about uh, uh, other stories, like the famous um, tower in, 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 in Italy here of Pisa. Uh, you know, look at this leaning tower. Why? Because the foundation wasn't correct. Or you, I, I just saw in, in India this three-story house that literally just building just collapses. Why? Because the foundation, it was not built upon the good foundation. And so God's law, in a sense, right, is used for us to build a good foundation and understanding for our lives. And so that's why it's so important to have a good understanding, a good worldview from a godly perspective, a theological grounding of God's order and God design and how we should live our lives. This is a good thing for us. He, this is a gift from God to us. This isn't a bad thing. This isn't put in place to diminish us, but to flourish us. This isn't put in place to punish us, but to literally protect us. The law of God was laid down as a foundation to help us stay on track so that we don't get all messed up, Romans 7, 7. It's also like a mirror that literally uh, helps uh, bring up so that we can see things that we don't see where we're missing the mark. And then it also points out what pleases God so that we can enjoy how God intended things to be, how he envisioned it and designed it. But come on, let's be honest. A lot of us, when it comes to God's law and his blueprint, 
We just sometimes just don't want to deal with it. And we think, well, we're just going to figure it out on our own. We're just going to figure it out all by ourselves. And we just kind of dismiss his foundation, dismiss his blueprint, and we say we're going to do it our way. It reminds me of, I know I was, I've been on this journey with many of you where you've picked up a new piece of furniture from maybe a store called Ikea. And you try to put this table together and the, the instructions are like this thick and you're kind of like, well, whatever. And you kind of throw it off to the side and you think you can just figure it out. And so you try to begin the process and then you're so frustrated after a while because nothing seems to be lining up. Nothing seems to be working and you just want to scream because you're so mad and so frustrated until finally you surrender and go pick up the manual, have to tear everything apart and start back in order do the order in which it told you to do it in. I tell you that because in the same way, where might you need to have to rip up some of your life to rebuild your foundation based on God's blueprint instead of the world's blueprint? Where might you need to kind of reset, in a sense, restart because of maybe some of the foundations where you're a little skewed or weak when it comes to the world's order in God's order? Where might you need to have a little reset and saying, instead of when it comes to foundations and the way that you view certain things or social issues in the world, whenever you start to say the phrase, you know, I feel, is always a signal of you might want to question where you stand on that. It's shifting from not I feel, but to what does God say? Not I feel, but what does God say? That's a filter that's so important for us to walk in our lives of what does God say instead of what do I feel? Like, you know, this looks good. This feels good. This sounds good. Yeah, I know God says this, but whenever those moments happen, that should be a red flag. And I know sometimes we have to say, yeah, but I feel like God says this. And even in those moments, in some of those gray areas, we still need to walk with caution. And so, where might you need to pull something apart in your life where maybe you don't have the right foundation and pick up God's manual and God's blueprint and restructure and reset and reorder? Verse 12, it says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and unbelief. It continues. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is a trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Can you notice when he says I am? That's not past tense, but that's present tense. Paul is pausing for a moment to marvel that God would still use him. And even in the midst of God still using him, what is the title that, that Paul gives himself? The chief sinner. Paul's remembering, like, we're remembering, like, remember, Paul was a murderer of Christians that turned into a minister to Christians. And Acts 9, we're reminded of how the people, the, the early church, 
uh, thought that Paul was a trap. It was a scam that they were trying to trap in, in to, so that they could be arrested. I mean, no way could the Saul of Tarsus now be this great church planter and, and lover of Jesus. I mean, it was crazy. And so Paul's pausing and remembering the grace that God overflowed to him, and he was thanking God for that, reminding us to stay humble and to never get so spiritually confident or get carried away by our victories in Jesus. May we never get beyond the wonder of our salvation, of God's overflowing grace that we don't deserve. May we never get beyond that excitement. And so here's one question is, have you ever gotten spiritually prideful or arrogant in an area of your life? Is there an area where you're getting spiritually prideful or arrogant in your life where you find yourself thinking or even saying things out loud like, well, I'm not as bad as them. Or I can't believe people would do something like that or do things like that. Or if you're honest, you're literally keeping a spiritual scorecard, comparing yourselves to others instead of comparing yourselves to the blueprint of God. Where might you need to self-examine and remember the grace of God that you don't deserve that has been poured over and overflowing for you? Then last section of this chapter, he says this, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, continues. To the king of the ages, immortal, like never gonna decay, never gonna end, the invisible, the only God, there is no competition with, this, with our God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And then it says this, holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith because they've rejected it, among whom are Heminius and Alexander, whom I have handled over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. All of our lives, this reminds us, whether we want to admit it or not, are examples of God's unlimited patience. And we have no choice in that. We are all on display of God's unlimited patience that he has for us. Oh, the overdue judgment that he holds back that we deserve is remarkable. It's remarkable. All your shipwrecks in your life and all the shipwrecks in my life are constant examples of God's unlimited patience. So this is a reminder to us of what can we learn from our mistakes? What questions can we learn from our shipwrecks? You know, there's that term of, you know, check yourself before you wreck yourself. That's great. But what if we also looked at it more like this is after you wreck yourself, make sure you check yourself. After you wreck yourself, make sure that you check yourselves because sometimes we just kind of can move on so fast and we don't slow down for the moment and really sit in and evaluate how is this making me feel right now because of this wreck that I just shipwrecked on? How, how has this set me back? Where was I vulnerable? What is one thing that I can identify where I can shift because of this so that I can actually become stronger because of this wreck? And it's the same thing that goes to other shipwrecks that we see happening in other people's lives. 
When we look at other people's shipwrecks, we can't just be like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. We always need in those moments to stop pointing and then put it back and say, okay, based on their shipwreck, where might I be vulnerable? Now, speaking of being vulnerable, I'm going to share with you a shipwreck of my own life that happened recently in the past couple months. And uh, I kind of hesitated to share this because honestly, it's a little vulnerable um, for me. Um, but it was a parent wreck, a parent mistake. Uh, I have, uh, I'm a veteran of 12 years now of being a parent. Uh, yeah, right. Um, learning every day from all of my wrecks and mistakes. But this was probably, in my opinion, the biggest parent wreck, parent fail uh, on my journey. Uh, this is my boy, Tavin. Um, he's five years old. Uh, I was his T-ball coach this year. And uh, just love my sweet son. And uh, we finished a game, and I was with my daughter, Lena, and we were going to get something to eat after a game. And I was talking to Lena, and they were talking about some, you know, how they weren't uh, uh, listening to their grandma and grandpa, and I was talking to them about that and obeying them. So I was kind of already a little set off guard about some of the things that, were ha that happened at grandma and grandpa's house. Anyways... Um, I start to talk to Tavin, like, hey, buddy, you gotta, like, you know, that is not acceptable. You can't say those things at Nana's house. And I turn around, and he's not in his car seat, or he's not in his seat. And I'm like, Tavin, where, where's Tavin? He had taken his seatbelt off, and he got in the back of the van's trunk, and he was pulling something out of the trunk of the van while we're driving. And I just, you know, I've told my kids hundreds of times to put your stinking seatbelt on. And in that moment, I was frustrated that, you know, one, he had already disobeyed in one area, and now he's disobeying in this area. And so I've I did what I've done multiple times, where I do the little brake check with your kids to kind of make sure you put your seatbelt on. And normally when I do that, they're already in their seat, and so they kind of just hit their face up against, you know, the back of the seat. Well, this time, he was standing up. And when I brake checked pretty hard, uh, my boy literally flew and slid uh, down and hit the cup holder on his eye and uh, popped up. And uh, it was a sight that I'll never get out of my face, uh, never get out of my mind. And uh, so I had to rush him to the children's hospital. And before I show this, like, don't get mad at me. <laughs> um, th this is even hard for me to look at, uh, but... Uh, this is cringeworthy, but here's a picture of my boy right after. Um, uh, it always still messes with me whenever I see it uh, because even though it was an accident, um, I still, it was a purposeful accident. I, I'm the one that did it, and uh, it was just awful. And uh, just a crazy 24 hours. Um, the doctors, uh, when they first saw him, we're very concerned immediately about, okay, what kind of eye damage will he have with his sight? And then also all the scarring because of all the, de all the depth of the cuts. And so now I'm just sitting there for hours praying over my son and feeling like the worst parent on the planet. How could I have done this? What is wrong with me? Like, I'm normally, a, ask Jen, I'm normally, a, I'm, the, I'm the patient one in the family. I'm slow to anger in the family. Um, and yet this, here I am. I, I'm the cause of this. And it was just so hard, and uh, you know, we're praying over him. And then there's a longer story, and I don't have time, but 
I literally believe God did some serious miracles and kind of got me out of a hole here uh, because the story began to shift fast with the doctors and they were even shocked and they were even surprised. And the plastic surgeon was even surprised. And I walked out of the hospital that night with a boy uh, that should have had multiple stitches and scars and eye damage with no eye damage and not one stitch in my boy's eyes. And I walked out squeezing him and holding him so tight that I just like, I, I can't even tell you the feeling of relief that, that came over me. And here's a picture now of my boy and you can't even, you know, you barely see it. And notice Jen's still with me, okay? Uh, she didn't leave me for it. Uh, but uh, man, like and I, I, I tell you that story for a couple reasons is that we have to learn from our wrecks. And this is one of the biggest recent wrecks that I've experienced as a parent. Um, and I, I, I learned that even though normally I'm very patient, but I still can work on my patience. And there's some things that I need to do when those moments of frustration uh, as a parent where they kind of like let you go a little crazy, um, there's some things that I needed to shift in my heart. And not only that, my son has learned to put a stinking seatbelt on. And every time he gets into the car, I don't even have to ask him anymore. That seatbelt goes on. And, you know, who knows how that will protect him in his future when he gets older. Um, all that being said is that we have to take time and be honest in our wrecks to take a moment to shift and say, okay, where do I need to shift? Where do I need to change? And for me, where do I need to shift when it comes to my patience with my children and my responses and how I react? And what does that look like for you? What does that look like for you in your life? You know, maybe if you're honest, um, you know, you've had a shipwreck this week with your anger or with your temper. Or maybe you've had a shipwreck with lust or with an addiction that you went back to or your, or your spending habits with your money or with your bitterness or with your lying or with your gossip or with you go ahead and just fill it in the blank. May we be people that do not waste the shipwrecks and we allow those shipwrecks to pause us and then look at that wreck through the lens of his blueprint to shift and to change. And so what have we learned? What have we seen? Let's recap. It says, um, you know, early on, you know, the, the question is, is where could we be wasting our royal command? Don't forget the royal command that God has given you for your life and where you're specifically at and your giftings and where he has you. You are not where you're at. You are not working at your job. You're not at that school. You're not in your neighborhood by accident. And God has given all of us as Jesus followers a royal command. And then where might we need to adjust when it comes to our foundation from what I feel to, no, 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 but what does God say? Yeah, yeah, but this just doesn't seem loving or that doesn't seem right. Yeah, but what does God's design say? What does God's order say? Not what the world's order says. Where might you need to pull some things apart and reset your foundation based on the blueprint. And then lastly, again, what shift can we make from our most recent wreck? And to build upon it and to be strengthened by it. And then to always remember that no matter what our wrecks are, no matter what we've done, 1 John 1, 9, that when we confess our wrecks to him, our sin to Jesus, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and all of our unrighteousness. Last thought, um, 
One of the things that uh, I learned through my son's accident uh, when it comes to my faith is, uh, you know, my son, the picture of my son's face beat up. That was an accident. Um, even though it was like a purposeful accident because I was the cause of it, but I didn't mean for that to happen. I would never, you know, do that to my son's face on purpose. It was an accident. But then as I processed that and I processed that with God and going through that hole in my mind, it brought me to the picture of God the Father destroying his son's face not on accident but on purpose and the reason why he did that was to save me from my sins and I think about the pain and the feeling of how awful I felt of what I did by accident to my son and here we have on a whole other Hence, like I know it doesn't even compare moment of, of the heavenly father brutally allowing his son where he could have pulled him off the cross at any point letting that go down and the, and the scripture says that, that he turned and I know often in theology it's that he turned because of, of the sin that, carry, that was carrying upon the son of God Jesus but then I also now think about that father-son relationship that he turned potentially to because of that was his son and it was so hard for him to look at. And he did all of that to save me and to save you from the penalty of our sin. And... Um, I don't know what that means for you today. I don't know if, if you've received that today. I, I don't know, but I just want you to know that God loves you so much that he willingly, not on accident, but allowed his son to go through the cross and then resurrect three days later so that you didn't have to pay the penalty of your sin. He, he did that for you because he loves you so much. And so I don't know if you realize that, if you haven't, let this be the day that you embrace that. And because of that, he gives you the gift of salvation. He gives you the gift of being restored back to him so that you're not separated from your creator. And the scriptures say that all who call upon the name of the Lord and believe in their heart, not their behavior, but their belief will be saved. And so if you've never called upon Jesus to be your Lord and savior for your life, if you've never called on him and thanked him for what he did for you by putting his son on the cross for you, then let this be the day that you proclaim that. And so wherever you're listening and watching, just, just, just say, Father, thank you for sending your son and for dying for me and for doing it on purpose and not by accident. Thank you. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me for all my shipwrecks. I believe, I don't understand it all, but I believe you, Jesus, are God. And right now, I receive you to be the king of my life. 
As we continue to pray, my friends, if you truly meant that, the scripture is so, so clear that you will no longer perish, but you will have everlasting life. And it's a life that truly begins now. Father, thank you so much for your blueprint, for your order, for your design. Forgive us when we push it away. Help us to hold on to it. Help us to cling to it with all we have, with all faith in what you've done and what you've given to us. And we pray this in the power of your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, listen, if you made a faith decision today, we want to ask you to not walk alone. And uh, you can just, we encourage you to tell someone, tell a friend, tell a spouse, tell a parent, let them know about this decision that you've made. Um, And uh, if you want to let us know, we'd love to know, to celebrate with you and to answer any questions that you have. And so you can just text the the numbers on the screen there. And uh, one of our team members can't wait to celebrate and get back to you. Keep moving towards Jesus keep moving down the path, keep moving down the trail. It's so, so important and don't walk alone.